Good afternoon. You're listening to KFSK News for Tuesday, November 28th. I'm Hannah Floor. A suspect is in custody after a month-long string of burglaries at Petersburg businesses. The Petersburg Police Department arrested 27-year-old Zachary Bray last Wednesday on several burglary and drug-related charges. KFSK reports. The arrest started with a package at the Petersburg Post Office. Petersburg police say that Postmaster Kim Alba had several suspicious interactions with Bray about a package he was attempting to retrieve, addressed to Zach Martinez. Police Chief Jim Kerr says her instincts that something was off got the ball rolling. Her attention to detail and using her training that they receive to be able to think that something was up with that package, I mean, you have to give her some definite kudos for putting that together and contacting the right people. Alba contacted Postal Inspector Alex Brown after an attempted break-in at the post office on November 16th. Brown got a federal search warrant for the package and sent the warrant to the Petersburg Police Department. That same day, Petersburg Police Officer Jared Pop searched the package and found nearly 15 grams of suspected counterfeit oxycodone pills containing fentanyl. Five days later, the Petersburg Police Department, Alaska Wildlife Troopers, and United States Postal Inspectors served a search warrant to Bray's residence. The home was full of things commonly used for drug sales and use, like baggies, foil, and pipes. But officers also found a tote full of merchandise that matched items stolen from the 420 marijuana store late last month. Officers also found clothing that the suspect had been wearing in security camera footage during the 420 burglary and other recent burglaries. Officers say that Bray told them that he had attempted to break into the post office to get the package of suspected fentanyl pills. He said that a friend in New Mexico had offered to send him the pills to sell after he had a rough summer fishing season. Bray said he'd been getting threats from an alleged drug dealer in New Mexico demanding money and he feared for his safety. Officers say he admitted to stealing money from several local businesses, El Zarape Mexican Restaurant, the 420, Petersburg Moose Lodge, and Blomsterhus. He said he'd broken into those places to get money to send to his contacts in New Mexico when they started demanding cash. Bray was initially arrested on one felony drug trafficking charge, five felony burglary charges, four theft charges, and six criminal mischief charges. Since then, the ten charges of theft and criminal mischief were dropped, citing lack of probable cause. But Police Chief Jim Kerr says that's just due to a lack of detail in the charging documents. Those will be added back at grand jury. Um, We didn't have all the damage estimates. Kerr says that the department is certain that Bray was acting alone and that the drug trafficking is not related to last month's drug bust of six people for drug trafficking charges. He says that the arrest would not have been possible without help from the public, including from businesses around town that were not burglarized. Several businesses shared exterior security footage with the police department. For those businesses to go through hours of their surveillance footage to help us piece together a timeline and following the person through town, I mean, yeah, the police department's the one that arrested them, But basically, it was a group effort. Bray has been appointed a public defender who did not respond to a request for comment. In Petersburg, I'm Hannah Floor. And Bray is in custody at the Petersburg jail. His bail has been set at $20,000. If he remains in custody, his next hearing will be December 1st. If he is released on bail, his next hearing will be December 8th. 
Since Wrangell's landslide occurred last Monday night, responders have been working tirelessly to ensure safety and transportation continue. Drivers will soon be able to pass through the landslide debris field through a path cleared by road workers. This will allow supplies to reach residents on the south side of the island for the first time by road. Over the weekend, road crews significantly cleared a section of the landslide debris at mile 11 on Zamovia Highway. Shannon McCarthy is a spokesperson for the State Department of Transportation. She says although a lot of cleanup still needs to happen, most of the asphalt underneath the debris has been found in good shape. We were pleased to see that the asphalt was still intact, which was just on that northern part of the road. On Monday, only emergency vehicles were permitted to pass through, but that's expected to change today. McCarthy says that the road will be open for 30-minute intervals beginning this morning during the daylight hours to ensure the public's safety. There still does need to be a lot of cleanup and stabilization in the area. The, the slide does shift from time to time, so we are taking a look at that and um, we're considering how we provide access to the public and still keep it safe. So we may end up um, just starting with some daytime hours, some openings for folks. Drivers may pass through during the following times, from 8 until 8.30 a.m., from noon until 12.30 p.m., and 3.30 until 4 p.m. These hours will continue for a couple of days until additional clearing is complete. And portable message boards will be placed this weekend on the road before and after the slide site to inform the public about site conditions and provide further information to drivers. Currently, Wrangell police are located on-site to provide security. And power has been restored to the south side of Wrangell Island. Wrangell's community continues to rally, rally together. A week after the fatal landslide, a new fund has been set up at First Bank called the Wrangell Community Relief Fund, where people can donate. Also, a GoFundMe account was set up for victims and their families, as well as for search and rescue. Lieutenant Chase Green, who is with Wrangell's Salvation Army, has noticed an increase in the need for the food pantry. We've been seeing a lot more need right now, um, especially after last week. Uh, we've been seeing just a, just a lot more folks, um, so we wanted to open it up um, during those off weeks where we would normally be stocking up. Um, but right now, we, we really want to make sure people um, get the food that they need. The Salvation Army's food pantry will now be open every Tuesday from 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. until the end of the year, instead of every other Tuesday. Other services that have been provided locally include an Alaska Airlines miles donation account, food made and delivered to the work crews and victims, taxi and boat rides, donated clothes and shelter, as well as counseling support offered through Southeast Alaska Regional Health Consortium and the Red Cross. The front doors of the Petersburg Middle and High School will be locked each day after classes begin. The change was implemented Monday morning and is meant to increase security at the schools. KFSK reports. The decision to lock the front doors came after two separate threats were made by students to the school this fall. But secondary principal Brad King says that while those threats added a degree of urgency to the changes, he would have eventually made the change anyway. When you look at the events that have occurred throughout the country for years and years, everybody is looking at their facilities and saying, okay, how can I make this work better? How can I make this safer? 
Data from the Federal Bureau of Investigation shows that active shooter events, where one or more people are attempting to kill others in a public area, are more than 20 times more common than they were two decades ago. Staff at Petersburg High School and Mitkoff Middle School now lock the front doors each day after school starts at 8.05 a.m. The doors have newly installed doorbells, an intercom system, and cameras, which the staff use to assess visitors. King says most of the time, people coming by the school are dropping off forgotten lunches or sports gear, but the staff are learning what to watch for. We want to be aware of somebody who's dressed in such a way where they might be concealing something, and we want to see them more up close and personal before we open the door. There are some complications. It's hard to break students of the friendly habit of just opening the door for anyone standing outside. And shop class is in a different building altogether. Administration is still figuring out how to make transition between those classes as smooth as possible. It just takes a little bit of logistical work to make things like this happen. It's never perfectly comfortable for anybody, but it's, you know, it's the price we pay for trying to keep the kids as safe as possible. King says he'd like to continue increasing security. He says the school eventually plans to change the entryway so that the front doors are visible to office staff and they don't have to rely on cameras to see people waiting outside. They also plan to install reflective glass on the windows of the first floor. The only way you know that safety features are are working is when nothing happens. And that's not the most overt indicator of of success, but if nothing happens, we're doing pretty good. Stedman Elementary School plans to lock its front doors as well. Principal Heather Kahn said in an email to parents on Monday that while there is no date set for the change, the equipment is on order. She noted that the majority of school districts in the United States lock their front doors for safety reasons. Money for the security upgrades comes from the school district's maintenance and security funds. Administration is hoping to get grant funding for future upgrades. In Petersburg, I'm Hannah Floor. When it comes to Kuskokwim River salmon, the only thing the federal government and the state of Alaska seem to agree on is there's a lot at stake in a legal battle over rural priority for subsistence. Rhonda McBride talked with Representative Mary Peltola about the lawsuit the federal government has filed against the state of Alaska and its impact on salmon management. Representative Mary Peltola says cooperation is always in the best interest of salmon and a lawsuit the federal government has filed against the state shows the failure of both agencies to find common ground. And not worry so much about whose jurisdiction it is and who has the final say. So I think all fisheries management should be collaborative between managers and stakeholders. But 10 years ago, after a series of failed salmon runs, the federal government took over management of about 200 miles of the lower Kuskokwim, the part that runs through federal land. Another 500 miles remains under state control. Federal managers claim jurisdiction under the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, or ANILCA, which gives it authority to manage subsistence for a rural priority in times of shortage, But when federal managers clashed with the state over regulations three summers ago, it filed a lawsuit against the state. The state, though, claims that federal management has interfered with its responsibility to make sure enough salmon reached their spawning grounds. But Peltola doesn't believe that's entirely true. One of the flaws that I see in the state's argument is that the state of Alaska Department of Fish and Game 
statewide, they meet their Chinook escapement goals between 50 and 60 percent of the time, which is an F. Peltola says that once federal managers and tribes began to co-manage the lower river in 2015, escapement goals were met, which allowed enough salmon to reach their spawning grounds. She says that the state has repeatedly tried to lower that target, which both the tribes and federal managers oppose. We understand the importance of eggs in the gravel and People understand that we don't have abundance. We used to see six returning fish for every fish that spawned. Now we see less than one returning fish for every fish that spawns. Peltola does have a dog in this fight. Before she ran for Congress, she was head of the Kuskokwim River Intertribal Fish Commission. She believes co-management combined the best of traditional knowledge and Western science. And in the best of all possible worlds, the state would be an important partner given its expertise and the vast body of research on the fishery it's amassed over the decades. But Peltola doesn't believe the current state administration wants to collaborate. So I think it's really just political. But State Fish and Game Commissioner Doug Vincent Lang says the Intertribal Fish Commission hasn't always been easy to work with, and both groups interpret data differently. But most important of all, he says the state has a responsibility to defend itself against federal overreach. The note is pretty clear. The federal government has a right when the state opens up a fishery to further restrict that fishery. That's not what's happening in the lower Cuscoquan River. They are opening the fisheries. They are closing other uses. They are completely supplanting state management with federal management. Vincent Lang says he doesn't think Anilka ever envisioned a complete replacement of federal management on the river. The commissioner says the lawsuit forced the state to defend its authority under the Statehood Act and the state constitution. Once we got sued, we had no choice but to defend our, our authorities and responsibilities. The commissioner says whatever happens in court, the state will continue to do its part in providing federal managers the necessary research and data it will need to do its job. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Floor.